Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Trump an insurrectionist, sir? Well, I think it's certainly self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. And no question about it. None. Zero. That is, of course, the bumbling, uh, sometimes demented Joe Biden, currently occupying the space known as President of the United States. He was in an airport, so there was a lot of jet noise in the background. But the question shouted by the lady reporter was, is Trump an insurrectionist? And he proceeds to say, of course he is. And there's no doubt about it at all. But I'm going to let the courts decide. Isn't that nice? And that's Joe Biden's comment after yesterday's decision late in the day that the Colorado Supreme Court, seven members, they voted four to three to throw Donald Trump off the primary ballot in the state of Colorado. Now, I think that that decision is going to get thrown out uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court, and let's hope it's very, very soon. And it'll send a message to all of the other states, including, most recently, California, where the lieutenant governor of California has said, well, we have to do everything we can to make sure that Donald Trump does not appear on the ballot. Now, this is absolute lunacy, but that was Biden. So, like usual, he uh, he says, of course he's an insurrectionist, but we'll wait and let the courts decide. So he got he has to talk about it out of both sides of his mouth. But I want to give you a couple of thoughts on that. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, uh, we're going to put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. Uh, you can also vote in our Twitter poll. We put it up on X or Twitter, whichever you prefer. Should states throw President Trump off the ballot for insurrection, as Colorado has already done, as California is likely to try to do? And my answer to that is no. And I think they're going to get a big, solid no from the U.S. Supreme Court as well. But you can find the question. Uh, it's brought to you always by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined long time ago. You should do it, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, I asked you yesterday, because of the actions of the uh, Texas legislature. They passed three new laws, bills, and then they were signed into law when Governor Greg Abbott signed them. And it came down to this. If Joe Biden won't guard our southern border, should states enforce the law for them as Texas has acted to do? I said yes. 97% of you said yes. Only 3% of you said no. Now, I'd love to hear the naysayer on that. Why shouldn't Texas act to protect itself and its citizens from this invasion of illegal aliens if Joe Biden won't get the job done? Anyway, that was yesterday's result. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. So you've got the president of the United States, Joe Biden, who's saying Trump is an insurrectionist. Isn't that interesting? Because Donald Trump has only been accused of insurrection once that was in the impeachment that was brought at the last minute with zero evidence. 
and he was acquitted. So was he accused by Joe Biden's DOJ of insurrection? Nope. Did they accuse others, some members of the J6 crowd of insurrection? Yep. Could the DOJ have charged Donald Trump with insurrection? Nope. So at this point, Donald Trump has been charged one time with insurrection, and he has been exonerated. But there's an even more important reason, and that is that under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is not an officer of the United States as they wrote that constitutional amendment. And believe me, constitutional amendments are not drawn up on the back of a cocktail napkin, you know, over beers. These are carefully considered. Every word, every jot, every tittle is taken into account. So let me suggest that this suggests something truly disturbing about members of the Democrat Party, all of the court justices in Colorado who voted to throw Donald Trump off the ballot are appointed by Democrats, by Democrat governors, all of them. And four of them voted to throw Trump off the ballot. As far as I'm concerned, only corrupt dictators maintain their power by throwing opponents in jail or throwing them off the ballot. Ask yourself, have you ever heard of a time where Americans, not play, not people in Cuba, not people in China or Russia or Venezuela, have you ever thought that America would have a president who says, I am so hell-bent on winning the election in 24, as Joe Biden is, that if I'm challenged by somebody who's going to beat me, I'll throw him, I'll get him thrown in jail. I'll get him thrown off the ballot. And that's exactly what his allies are doing. Joe Biden and his allies have tried both, and they're still losing. Four court cases in four places, bringing 91 criminal charges against President Donald Trump. Now, I know that many people say, well, that's horrible. No, it's not. He's going to beat all of them. And that's not working for the Democrats either. So now the Colorado Supreme Court removes him from the primary election ballot. The court relies on the 14th Amendment to do this. Now, you think it's an action on Trump. It's not. It's an action on the people of Colorado. What the Colorado Supreme Court did was they said to their own citizens, about four million of them in the state of Colorado, it said, you can't even cast a ballot for that guy with orange hair, the mean tweeter. Congress... <laughs> wrote the 14th Amendment to keep Confederate military members who actually did engage in an armed insurrection against the United States from running for high office. The House of Representatives charged Donald Trump with insurrection in a last-minute evidence-free impeachment. But remember, the Senate acquitted him of that charge. Even the Biden FBI, which investigated, and believe me, they found no Trump insurrection, and they looked. And I think I think I could easily say that if Joe Biden's FBI, a thoroughly politicized and weaponized federal agency, if they could have found a grounds for or the grounds for going after Donald Trump for insurrection, they would have done it. The DOJ did bring insurrection charges against other people's uh, people. But Donald Trump was not one of them. He wasn't even named as an unindicted co-conspirator conspirator in that insurrection. No matter. Uh, the Democrat Party does not let facts or the Constitution get in its way when their demented leader is sucking wind and destined to lose. Joe Biden's approval ratings this week dropped to 34 percent, and that is down 10 percentage points from July. And July was nothing to write home about. So if you can't beat him, impeach him. But you can't jail him. But you can't tell citizens you won't even let them vote for him. Now that. 
my friends, is serious desperation. The U.S. Supreme Court, I think, is going to shoot down this unconstitutional move, along with all of the other states that are trying it, including California, where just today the lieutenant governor of California is saying, let's do everything we can to throw him off the ballot. And you know what? When the U.S. Supreme Court shoots down all of that mess, that big, hot mess, they're going to take away Joe's last gasp at staying in power and out of prison for the corruption that he is clearly engaged in. Coming up in just a moment, your phone calls and your emails. And the Colorado Supreme Court's decision, are they justified or is this election interference? We're going to talk to a top expert coming up next on the Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and Merry Christmas in advance of the date. Uh, but welcome to the program. If you want to get on, uh, in, get into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And join me in welcoming Jim Burling, who's Vice President of Legal Affairs at Pacific Legal Foundation. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. Merry Christmas in advance. Merry Christmas to you as, as well. You're a lawyer. I'm not. I want you. I want you to answer. Let's do some basics on the Colorado Supreme Court uh, decision of yesterday, and then I'll be glad to let you let fly at this. I think crazy decision. Does Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment apply to the pre- to any president of the United States? No court. You see, the Colorado Supreme Court is the first one to have said yes. Uh, no other court has reached the issue. And it's like the Section 3 says it, it describes the Congress people, it realized state officers, but it expressly does not mention the president or vice president being officers pursuant to Section 3. So why would they list everything else and leave those two out? And that's going to be the question before the Supreme Court. Does it make a difference that the president and vice presidents off, were not listed as officers subject to the insurrection clause or not? And a lot of people are going to put a lot of weight on the fact that they weren't mentioned in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, to the extent that they were officers subject to the insurrection prohibition. And we don't know. Nobody knows until the Big Nine are going to take this on. Well, uh, but haven't the Big Nine ruled on parts of that, uh, of the 14th Amendment, saying this doesn't apply to the president? Has, has the, hasn't the Supreme Court decided a couple of, of cases involving that question? Yeah, there, there have been times dealing with different issues, whether or not the uh, president is an officer under this. Uh, but those most people are looking at those cases saying, well, they're not completely dispositive because this is a very different context. And uh, I think I think the Supreme Court could go the U.S. Supreme Court could go either way on this, although uh, there, there are a lot of commentators writing back and forth about whether it applies or whether it doesn't apply. To me, the bottom line is it's an open question. Well, let me go to the second bottom line, and that is this. Is is there any case to be made that Donald Trump 
engaged in insurrection. And I think that that word, which is in the amendment, is is pretty is pretty uh, important because it doesn't say supported. In fact, the the history I was able to read, Jim, I don't have that law degree like you do, but um, they uh, they discussed a lot. They didn't want to outlaw speech. So if somebody aided and abetted, you know, gave food and weapons to the South during the Civil War, for example, you could be barred from office. But did is there a case to be made that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection when even the Biden DOJ has not charged him with insurrection? Right. Special Counsel Jack Smith decided not to charge him with insurrection because the case is rather weak. When you talk about insurrection, what are you thinking about? Or rebellion, you're thinking of the Shays Rebellion in the early days of the Republic. You're thinking about the Civil War. Uh, but when you have a riot at the Capitol where the president, you know, fires people up but doesn't tell them to go and take over the government, is he engaged in insurrection? And all we have so far is this, just a, a trial court decision that the Supreme Court of Colorado upheld, finding that the president, former president, supported and engaged in insurrection. And I think that's a tremendous reach. And I think uh, Donald Trump's uh, lawyers are going to be making a very strong argument that in their minds that there is no engagement in insurrection by giving a fire up the crowd speech. Now, given your experience at Pacific Legal Foundation, is this one the Supreme Court is going to take up quickly? Uh, because there's a time element here as well. Not only the Colorado primary, but now California's jumped into the mix with their lieutenant governor saying, let's let's move to get him off the ballot if we can, under the same basis. Should the Supreme Court take that, and will they take this up quickly? Well, you remember a few weeks ago, Jack Smith, in the case out of Washington, D.C., uh, against the president, asked the Supreme Court to take this on a fast track. And the Supreme Court said, "Okay, we're going to take the briefs and we're going to decide very quickly whether we're not going whether or not we're going to take the case. Now that this one is in line, I think the court has no choice but to take this case very quickly. Remember, they took Bush versus Gore very, very quickly, and they decided that thing in a hurry because the fate of the republic was hanging on it. And the same thing can be said here. Whether or not we have a democracy where people get to vote for the candidates, the qualified candidates of their choice, is in the balance right now. Who determines what's, quali what's a qualification? Who makes a decision of what a qualified candidate for president is? Is it the Supreme Court of Colorado? Is it a trial court in Colorado finding there is an insurrection? Uh, how is this decided? The Supreme Court's going to have to take this case because if they don't, it would be a complete dereliction of their duty. And and by the way, I mean, we've had people like Eugene Debs who actually ran for president from prison, but we haven't had anybody who's who's served as president who's been accused of insurrection and is currently running for the president, have we? No, this is first time for everything, right? And unfortunately, the time is now and we're in it. Uh, but, yeah, we've never had somebody being so audacious to try to restrict a candidate, a candidate that looks like in all the polls could very well win the election if it were held today, yep. and to keep this candidate off the ballot. Uh, I'm not sure what the Colorado Supreme Court or the people bringing this lawsuit were thinking, but it's only going to solidify the court for the, the, the public support for the former president. Those people that think that the prosecution so far have been unfair and therefore They've decided to vote for Donald J. Trump. Uh, this is only going to make that trend more uh, likely. And the, 
And the idea that the Colorado Supreme Court can have this much of an impact on the outcome of an election is rather astonishing. Well, and as you suggested, and I, I started the hour by saying only in a dictatorship do you find somebody saying, I'm, I want to hang on to power so much that I'm willing to throw my opponent in jail or keep his name off the ballot in order to keep my hold on power. Uh, do you think I've stated it too broadly? Well, I mean, it's certainly been tried by dictators around the country, around the world. I mean, look at Venezuela, look at the opposition parties being jailed there in Korea and Russia. Uh, should this be what's happening here? Uh, it's a huge question. I mean, what did Donald Trump do on January 6th that requires this sort of reaction? And that is something that has really, that question has torn this country apart because there's so little agreement on whether the former president did something so heinous to be subject to these prosecutions and to even be kicked off the ballot. It's a tremendous uh, riveting and hardening of the hearts of Americans. Well, and see, what I worry about, Jim, is the statement it's making to say that the Colorado Supreme Court, everybody focuses on the effect on Trump. I focus on the voter. They're telling their citizens of the state of Colorado, you're not allowed to vote for this guy. We will stop you from voting for this guy. And and that that sense, it just uh, it basically, like you said, it, it completely upends the idea of a republic with elements of democracy where we choose our representatives. They represent us. And now we've got the courts, uh, people, all, all seven of those court members, by the way, were appointed by Democrats. Uh, so Democrat governors. So a court appointed by Democrats, it now gets to tell Republicans, you're not allowed to vote for him. I mean, at that point, why should anybody have any faith in elections? Yeah, it would be one thing if President Trump were under the age of 35. It would yep. be one thing if he wasn't born in the United States or a citizen. Uh, but those are pretty clear-cut requirements in the Constitution. This one is far more ambiguous as to what effect that kind of the qualification of not supporting or engaging in insurrection has on the ability of people to vote for somebody. Well, and even his speech, you said he fired them up, and he did. He fires up every crowd he talks to, no matter what he talks about. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Donald Trump. But when he said, because I watched the speech live, watched it over again, read it over again, when he said, let's go up on, on Capitol Hill and peacefully and patriotically tell our representatives what we want done about counting the votes, I thought, well, that's that's anything but telling them to go up and let's riot, let's break doors, and let's overthrow the government. None, no such thing happened. Jim, thanks so much. That's Jim Burling from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Your call's coming up. And uh, should elected progressives who want the police defunded get special attention when they want a cop at their house? The Lars Larson Show. words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. 
We the people are the driver, the government is the car, and we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, and Merry Christmas to all of you. Before I take your calls, though, I want to mention this story because this tells you just about everything you need to know about progressives in general. A Texas Democrat who voted to defund the police and cut budgets by $100 million three years ago and is now begging for them to increase police patrols in his neighborhood. It is the kind of hypocrisy, it is the kind of selfishness and narcissism. Consider this, a progressive congressman, and this is Fox News, associated with the squad who proudly voted to defund the Austin Police Department uh, when he was on the city council and then blasted Uh, the department just last week for alleged racist practices is now asking for extra police patrols at his home. Representative Cesar's request was made through the United States Capitol Police in Washington, D.C., forwarded on to the Austin Police Department. I'm sure it has more juice when it comes from the Capitol Police. Uh, Cesar was perhaps the most vocal driver of defunding the Austin Police Department Three years ago in 2020, when he's a member of the city council, it led to a shortage of officers, a wave of officer retirements that the city still has not recovered from. And yet now, now when the representative wants some extra protection at his house, he thinks he's entitled. Uh, I think if the police had their choice, they'd probably say, we are not going to patrol his neighborhood. Too bad. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Jane in Nevada listening on KKFT. Hey, Jane, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Um, You know, they've been targeting and harassing Trump for six years now. And um, I'm I'm so mad I could spit because now they're trying to tell me how I can vote. And that's crossing a line. I mean, they've been bothering him and spending my, wasting my time and my tax dollars making up things and judicating against Trump forever and ever, and they still haven't stopped, and now they're going so far as trying to tell me how I can vote. There's got to be some limit here. Isn't there a law that they can't keep going after one individual over and over and over? Mm, Well, there's double jeopardy, but that's a different kind of question. But no. And in fact, I think their tactic right now, Jane, and and you should read, uh, Americans should see in this that you've got a president and a party that are convinced that Joe Biden has already lost next year's election. He's already lost. And the only way he can win is to take out his competition. I mean, maybe, and I'll... I'll give you a reference because I I met this lady a long time ago when I did a story on her. Do you remember Tanya Harding? Oh, yeah. The the ice skater, right? And she, some of her friends decided and they conspired to whack Nancy Kerrigan in the knee, saying, the only way I can win is I do a Nancy Kerrigan on on Donald Trump. And I got to hit him in the knees. And if I hit him in the knees hard enough, I can knock him out of the competition. That's not a win. And yet the Democrats are saying, we want to represent the American people, but we only want you to have the leaders we choose. And as you said, they want to tell you, a citizen, you're not allowed to vote for Donald Trump. Let's go to uh, uh, let's go to Ted. Hey, Ted, welcome to the Lars Larson show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thanks for taking my call. 
You bet. In our legal system, we have a basic concept, a precept that you are innocent until what? Proved guilty. Proven Exactly. Yep. Can you be proven guilty outside a court of law? No. Uh, no, no. Only a court can decide that you're... Now, I can have the opinion that somebody is guilty, but an opinion is just an opinion, and everybody usually has at least one or two of them. Exactly. And so... Since he can't be convicted because he's never been in a court of law and accused of insurrection, doesn't it make sense that it, he would not be able to be prohibited from being on the ballot because he has not been convicted? You, you, would, you would think. But here's, here's the problem that the Colorado Supreme Court is engaged in. As I said, all seven members, Democrats, all chosen by Democrat governors, appointed to their positions by Democrat governors, and they've decided we're going to declare him guilty. And then effectively what the Colorado Supreme Court does, because the way our system works, the only way to say, hey, Colorado Supreme Court, you're wrong, is to appeal that case, in this case, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, typically, you know, if you if you had all the time in the world, you'd have to go through all the federal courts and work your way up to the Supreme Court. But they they know that the only way that anybody can overrule them is if the U.S. Supreme Court says to the Colorado Supreme Court, no, you can't just decide that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection. So when you say, what's the fix? You know, how do you fix this? You say the Supreme Court has to slap down the Colorado Supreme Court. They know that. And um, I mean, for a long time, I've been, I've been calling this kind of behavior, the behavior, the 16 year old boy rule. And, and if I hit too close to home, let me know. And what it is, is if you're out with your buddies when you're 16 and you're a little wild and you're doing something and you say to one of your buddies, are we allowed to do this? And your buddy says, till we get caught. It's, you know, and, yeah. and you know, there, I mean, I'm sure that many of us have memories of doing things and saying, I don't think we can do this. And except when one of your friends who's maybe a little more crazy says we can till we get caught. That's what the Colorado Supreme Court has done. They said, we can do this till the Supreme Court slaps us down. And maybe they're rolling the dice that the Supreme Court won't slap them down. Well, I have confidence in our system, and we have checks and balances for a reason. Yeah, we do, but they seem to be eroding lately, Ted. I mean, because Agreed. when you see decisions, and I'll, I'll throw you one, uh, a father who goes with his 12-year-old son to a pro-life protest. He's allowed to do it. It's in the Constitution. He's allowed to express his opinion. A woman begins threatening his son, and he, he just gives her a push back, saying, don't, don't go after my 12-year-old son. And, uh, and he finds an FBI SWAT team on his front doorstep, you know, a short time later. And you say, well, hold on, that can't happen. It can if you have federal agencies like the FBI that are so corrupt at this point, I mean, I used to hold back and say, well, there may be a few corrupt individuals, but the whole agency can't be that screwed up. When you have people in an agency that say, the boss told us to go out and raid this guy's house, <laughs> and, you're, and you're telling one of your fellow agents and he says, what do he do? Is he a major league drug dealer or something? You said, no, he shoved a woman at a pro-life rally. And you say, and we're going to show up with 12 people and machine and submachine guns to arrest this guy. Yep, that's what we're going to do, because what they're trying to do is we now have government agencies that are trying to intimidate the American people. And if if the police intimidate criminals, I have no problem with that. If if drug dealers live in fear of getting caught, 
if kidnappers and rapists and murderers live in fear of getting caught. But when you tell average Americans, even if you're doing something that is completely justified, is protected as a God-given right, but protected by the Constitution, you may find a federal agency hauling you away in handcuffs, armed men on your doorstep, you know, potentially humiliation in your community, and you say, but everything I was doing was just free speech and allowed under the law, and I hurt no one. And they say, it doesn't matter. And and I think what we've gone to, Theodore, is there's a a guy I like to quote, Beria, who worked for Stalin. And, And what he said, his famous quote was, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And what he meant was, it doesn't matter if a person's innocent or not. Even if he's as innocent and, and pure as the driven snow, if you show me that guy, I'll find something uh, that I can go after him with. And you're seeing that happen, especially with Donald Trump. Ted, thanks for the call. Back in just a moment. It's a pleasure to be with you on Wednesday. Merry Christmas to all of you in advance and a happy new year as well. Coming up, we got to talk about why it's so important for the Freedom Foundation to decertify a major Florida teachers union. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll get back to calls in just a moment. But I want to bring on our friend Aaron Witt, who is Freedom Foundation CEO. I want to talk about what's going on in Florida, because this this is another issue in which uh, I think kids would be better off if teachers unions were decertified across America. Now, I've said I don't I don't like unions myself. I don't want to be in a union myself. I have been in a union myself. And when I was, I worked to decertify that union. I'd like to say, see the same kind of freedom brought about for teachers in Miami-Dade. So, Aaron, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars. Thank you for having me on. So tell me this. There is a set of rules, a little different, and it's different in Florida than it is in, in some states, that says teachers unions are not just decertified by their members deciding we want to decertify, but when they fail to meet certain thresholds of membership, they may automatically go to a t- to a, a decertification vote. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We passed a new bo- uh, law with the help of the state legislature and the governor of Florida this year, Senate Bill 256. And what that did is it made it automatic decertification votes uh, for when membership slips below 60%. We were fed up of seeing teachers unions take money from uh, teachers in these school districts where they had low union membership. And frankly, uh, so were the teachers. So now, as a result of this bill, there are dozens of districts across Florida, including Miami-Dade, where membership is floundering. Uh, and now we have the opportunity to actually decertify this union and replace it with something that is better and more equipped to actually help teachers. Now, is the huge news that, that they've now hit the number, they, or they've failed to hit the 60% membership, so it has to go to a vote, right? Yes, we passed this law in the summer, so they've had notice that they needed to get their membership up. They failed to do so. The American Federation of Teachers, the big, one of the biggest national unions, they flew in over 50 staffers to go and try and increase membership. They failed to do so. We found that out yesterday, um, just because they don't provide any services for these people. Um, so, yeah, we've now found out they're below 60%, and now our new local association that we've helped create with um, some teachers in the district, uh, now and, and they have to get showing of interest cards uh, for the next month to appear on a, ba- a decertification ballot uh, in the summer. 
How soon can that happen? Just by this summer? Yeah, so the way that the rules work is that uh, we have till January 18th to go and get the signatures, and then uh, the the local board there, the Labor board down in Florida, will decide the date of the election. But usually these things run around three or four months after that deadline. Okay, so but if it comes in the summertime, most of the teachers are gone in the summertime. Does that does that even uh, restrict their uh, their voting as well? No, it wouldn't restrict their voting. In fact, we think that it's a benefit to us because during the summer, of course, they won't uh, be in the schools and therefore the teachers' unions won't have access to bombard them with uh, stuff in their classrooms, just like we saw the past few months when they were berating them in their classrooms trying to get them to sign up to membership. So the fact that they'll be at home, uh, I think, will actually prove to be an advantage for us and, and our union because they'll get fair messaging. So tell me this. Um uh, I know that from time to time the unions will say why we we don't want a secret ballot. They want they want to know who voted against the union, especially if the union manages to stay in place. Whereas for national elections, they love the idea of of a secret ballot. So they love it when it's a an election ballot. They hate it when it's a union election. Is this going to be a secret ballot at least so that teachers who vote against union membership won't have to you know take take the brickbats from their fellow members? Yeah, I believe it will be. So they won't have to worry about that that kind of public pressure that we've seen uh, in other places. But let's make a note on this, Lars. This would be the biggest decertification in American history if successful. This is is 30,000 teachers and public employees that would have the ability to get out of their union and decertify. And really, this is a problem created by the union itself. If the union had said, we're going to go out, we're going to convince our members that we're providing them something really important, and our membership is, is higher than 60, they don't have to have the vote at all. And, and as they allow the number of, of union members to decline, if it hits, say it's right below 60%, that means if 31% of, of the teachers uh, of the of all the teachers in the district say we don't want the union then the union goes away now the union would probably cry foul to that saying well you're allowing uh, a minority of teachers to make the decision on the other hand if you preserve the union if 32 percent of the union vote to keep it uh, of all the teachers i mean then the teachers union stays in place with a decided minority of people supporting it yeah i mean this is the way that uh, the democracy should work and frankly in miami dade these, these guys were certified in the 1970s. I don't know if there's a single teacher that, uh, that's working in the school today that actually voted for this union. And I want these unions focused on keeping their membership. I want them focused on providing benefits to their membership, especially in a year like 2024. Because, as you know, Lars, uh, they spend most of their time and resources trying to campaign to get the next president elected. Yep. Every private sector business, uh, you know, they always cry foul about these big uh, private sector business owners that are going out and supporting Republican candidates. Well, the bottom line is they have to run a business first and foremost. The unions, they're political machines first and foremost. When is the last time we saw the teachers' union on defense? I mean, I haven't seen it in a hell of a long time. It's I refreshing to see them actually provide benefits to their membership and convince them that they need to belong there. And by the way, Aaron, just just spitballing these numbers, uh, average union member in Florida probably pays a thousand bucks or a little bit over for union membership in a year. Yeah, yeah. That's so right. that's thirty thousand times. I mean, I'm a public school graduate taught by unionized teachers, so I know that's thirty million bucks. 
How much of that $30 million do they spend actually representing their members and doing other things that are good for their members? It's got to be less than half of that $30 million, isn't it? Oh, yeah, far less than half. So $12 million of that goes to the, the local association, which arguably does uh, the most for the unions. But most of that money gets kicked to the state, local, and the national union. And now, most of those dollars are going to politics. And all I'm going to suggest, Aaron, is that if they say, well, how is the union supposed to do more for their members? If they went to their members and said, by the way, we need about 12 to 15 million to represent you. We're going to take the other 15 million and we're going to pour it into your pension plans or better medical or better anything else. All the, the things that come from union membership, they'd probably be able to hang on to their members just fine. Now, the Democrat Party would end up losing that money. But they could do it if they chose to. But the fact that they spend the majority of the union dues not on the members, but on politicians, ought to be enough for anybody to vote them out of existence. That's uh, Aaron Witt, who is the Freedom Foundation CEO. I can't wait for this election because it's going to be interesting to see how many teachers are going to say, I want to keep spending a thousand bucks a year on my union membership, knowing that well over half of it goes to Democrat politicians you disagree with. And well, less than half of it actually goes to serve the union members. How do you suppose that election is going to go? You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. It's a Wednesday. We're heading up to Christmas, so Merry Christmas in advance. Our Twitter poll today, after yesterday's development, during the show, actually, we got word that the Colorado Supreme Court had decided to throw President Trump off the Colorado primary ballot for President of the United States for insurrection. They found him guilty of a charge that he's only been charged with once, if you want to take it this way, that an impeachment is a form of indictment. So Donald Trump was indicted by Nancy Pelosi for insurrection, and he was acquitted of the charge by none other than the United States Senate. And since then, even the Biden DOJ has decided not to go after him for insurrection. Even the special counsel, Jack Smith, has not gone after him for insurrection. But there's the Colorado Supreme Court, made up of members of the court appointed by Democrat governors who decide all on their lonesome that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection and therefore he is not fit to be on the primary election ballot in Colorado. Now, should the states throw President Trump off the ballot for insurrection, as Colorado has done, as California is considering, as a number of other states have legal cases to try to do? I'd say no to that. 
But you can vote any way you like, at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And today's Twitter poll, as always, is brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens I joined a long time ago. It has the great conservative values I believe in, unlike AARP, which I don't think is much of an organization at all, and they definitely tilt to the left. Drop the AARP membership, join AMAC at amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Yesterday's Twitter poll or X poll went this way. If Joe Biden won't guard our borders, should states enforce the law for them as Texas has done? They passed a law through the legislature, the people's representatives. The governor signed it into law or three laws this week. And now Texas will enforce its own state laws, which are very similar to the federal immigration laws. But they simply say you can't come into Texas illegally from another country. Ninety seven percent of you said, yep, that's what the state should do. I agree with that. Only three percent of you said no to that idea. And I'm glad to get your calls as well at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I got to get something else off my chest and I'll get to your calls. I got to tell you something. America's political left-wingers have found some really crazy, even obscene ways to demonstrate just how much they despise this great country of ours. Joe Biden hosts a transgender pride event, and some of those invited decided that displaying their bare breasts on the South Lawn of the White House at that pride event was the right way to celebrate. I would uh, respectfully disagree, even though their actions were not very respectful. A new school board member in Virginia takes the oath on a staff of LGBTQ plus books from the school library that are so pornographic, I can't even describe the contents on the radio without risking a six-figure FCC fine. And the most recent outrage, a staffer for Democrat Party Senator Ben Cardin used a Senate hearing room, the same room where Supreme Court justices or nominees sit for their confirmation for some stunningly explicit sex with his boyfriend on a conference table. Yep, shot a video of it, posted it on the Internet. Did he expect it to remain private? It did not. Can't describe that one either, but graphic doesn't even begin to tell the tale, and yes, pun intended. Capitol Police are investigating, but you know their rules. Unless he was wearing a MAGA hat during the act, he won't face any charges. This Randy staffer, who appeared in some of Joe Biden's campaign ads, got fired for his performance, as he should have, and he promptly played the victim card, saying, quote, I love my job. I would never disrespect my workplace. Naked gay sex in a conference room on a table where senators sit? Seems that the Democrats enjoy, let's say, a divergent definition of disrespect. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Glad to take your calls and a shout out to our friends at KFIR. That's KFIR AM 720 in Sweet Home, Oregon, where they listen to Great Talk Radio all day. And you can find my show Monday through Friday. To your calls now. Let's start with Lori. Hey, Lori, welcome to the program. And if you want to join in, it's 866-439-5277. Lori, what's on your mind? Well, happy belated Hanukkah. Uh, Happy happy, uh, early Christmas. Um, And I love your whole music. Just had to say that. Thank you very Um, much. I I was making the point that even if they take Trump off the ballot on Every state, you can write him in. 
There's a line where you can write in anybody you want. So I think it would be awesome if he still won by write-in vote. Oh, I think so, too. But, Lori, a couple of, I guess, uh, caveats to this. So Colorado has said Donald Trump is disqualified from being president under the 14th Amendment because he engaged in insurrection. Now, as I said, he, he wasn't charged with insurrection or convicted of insurrection by the DOJ. He was also acquitted of insurrection by the U.S. Senate. So one yeah. of the questions that I don't I haven't heard anybody give an answer to, and it would have to come from the uh, elections officials, is if the Colorado Supreme Court says Donald Trump is disqualified as a candidate, and so his name will not appear on the ballot, if Coloradans write his name in, I don't think they're going to have to because the Colorado GOP has already said they're going to hold caucuses instead if this crazy decision by the Supreme Court holds or, or maintains. But if Colorado has taken this crazy position that Trump is actually disqualified as president, one of the questions Colorado, uh, Coloradans should ask themselves is, if I write his name in, will they count his name? And I think that if you assume that the bureaucracy in the elections department in Colorado is just as crazy as their Supreme Court, they could literally say, we don't need to count his name. He is, after all, according to our Supreme Court, disqualified. Now, I think that's entirely wrong for them to do that. But that would be the ultimate, uh, one of the biggest insults I could imagine to voters, saying you wrote his name in, but we're not going to count it because he's disqualified as a candidate. So hmm. I'm curious, I'm curious if anybody in Colorado, and we'll try right. to ask the question, but I have a feeling if, 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 if we are if, up in the air. What's and, that? and it has. What if things are still up in the air by the time elections come around or the primaries? If, it, if it's still up in the air and the Supreme Court of the America hasn't come to a decision yet, then it's still up in the air. So it seems well, like you ex should except, be except for two decide. things. Lori, I think you're going to hear fairly, I'm not a lawyer, but I think you're going to hear fairly right. soon that the U.S. Supreme Court will, one of two things, either take up the case and they'll take it up quickly like they did with Gore v. Bush in the Florida case uh. 24 years ago, or they're going to say, we're not going to take it up at all. And that would be the more disturbing uh, maneuver, because what they'd be yeah. saying is whatever the Colorado Supreme Court decided, that is the decision we stick with, and that would be a crime. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Small-town politics with big-town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. So if you're worried, as I am, about some of the pornography that's being put in front of your kids uh, in, in line with LGBTQ indoctrination of your kids in public schools, government-run schools. You should also be concerned about the 
I guess the agenda is the only way I can describe it, of the Democrat Socialists of America. So I thought we'd talk to Alex Nestor, who's an investigative fellow at Parents Defending Education. And PDE, while I have no direct connection to them, uh, I, I, I like the organization. I've always liked the organization. Alex, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. What is the DSA doing, the Democrat Socialists of America, in public schools? So, great question. Um, To take a step back, I just want to contextualize this as one of the many ways that we are seeing an increase of divisive race ideology in schools and controversial gender ideology in schools. So, to contextualize what we're talking about here, the Democratic Socialists of America, the political party um, that, you know, says that they believe that the development of U.S. capitalism was heavily reliant on theft of people's lives and land. This organization passed a resolution in 2023 at their convention to uh, run more candidates for school boards. So we have seen um, candidates run, DSA candidates run in 12 states. They're currently elected in eight. That's for school board positions. And, of course, we know, um, you know, their education platform, they push all sorts of different things, um, like the refusal of privatization of public goods, like education. So they're against all sorts of private education. They want to expand community schools. Um, they want to, quote, unquote, protect transgender students, which we know is just a euphemism for excluding parents from conversations about kids' lives, um, and advocate for, for students to take action, um, you know, it, like action civics and do protests during class time. So a bit about DSA and what they want to do in school. Well, and Alex, what seems disturbing to me about that is I inc- I've been encouraging for 25 years to get people to run for the school board. They say, what should I do, Lars, if I want to make a difference? I said, run for the school board. And they say, not the Congress, not the legislature, not the governor, not president or senator or whatever. I said, no, run for the school board. In most states, they spend uh, you know, close to or more than half of the entire state budget. So you're in a position of influence. You're not one vote of 435 or, or 100. You're one vote of usually five or seven or nine. And you'll, you'll make a real difference in your community. It's usually a thankless job. Most of them come with no paycheck at all and, and lots and lots of, you know, reading and research and, and all the rest of that. So it's, it's something important to be done. But these people come to it not saying we want to make the school, well, from their point of view, I'm sure they, they believe they're making the schools better, but they have a political agenda. That's exactly right. And you make a great point about school board elections. This is something that I think we only, unfortunately, woke up to uh, during and after the coronavirus pandemic. The, those local officials were, by and large, the ones that decided whether or not a kid received um, in-person education or was forced to learn online for months, if not a year, um, you know, years on end. So we know that these posi- positions, these elected positions are so important for the well-being of students. And you're exactly right. It's, it's very concerning to see such a, not only just a left-leaning lens, but a divisive, hardcore, progressive um, organization want to influence schools and make them more politicized. Well, and this message that somehow capitalism is evil, the entire, I guess, founding of the United States is based on evil. The evil still exists. It's still systemic racism, even though most of the time when I ask people about systemic racism, I say, give me an example of it. And they'll say, well, just 
the whole system is systemic and they can't point mm-hmm. to anything. And, and right. that's frustrating uh, because you say so uh, you're saying the system has some kind of uh, flaw or pathology, but you can't actually point to any evidence that it really exists. Um, that's kind of strange to begin with. But who who are most of these people, the, the DSA members who are running for these or, or are they just people endorsed by the DSA because they're willing to embrace the DSA agenda? Yeah, these are endorsed candidates who are running for these positions, and that leads into a broader point about who exactly we're talking about and what exactly the relationship is with, say, teachers unions, for example, and their ties to the DSA. I mean, these are candidates who will come out and openly support DSA platforms, ones that will accept those platforms and then therefore push them in their schools, ones that perhaps have worked with the DSA through the teachers union, Um, whether it's, you know, a teachers union passing, like in San Francisco, passing a boycott, divestment and sanctions movement resolution targeting Israel. They're pushing BDS as well. Oh, my God. Oh. Absolutely. I, I hope, will you t- tell my audience what, B- what BDS is? Because I know it. We've talked about it plenty of times where they effectively say anything connected to the Jews in Israel don't have anything to do with it. I mean, this is this is really nasty stuff. Exactly. It's something that, of course, um, you know, as we've uh, as we say time and time again, it's something that seems to have started at the university level that we're now seeing more in K-12 schools. Um, the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, often called the BDS movement, is a movement that targets the state of Israel um, by trying to push economic sanctions, like you mentioned, um, stopping all um, you know, purchases, buying things from Israeli companies and, and whatnot. Um, often the people who, uh, who are for this movement are not only anti-Israel, but they often um, are anti-Semitic as well. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, and does this include that triple-layer boycott where we're not buying anything from Israel, we're not buying anything from anyone who buys from Israel, we're not buying anything from, someone, from an entity that buys from an entity that buys from the state of Israel? Because that's the way it's been portrayed in some cases. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, that's definitely, definitely true. Or you'll also see at times um, there have been people upset by, say, police groups going to Israel and, and training there. They will say that that needs to be shut down. And, of course, the uh, DSA is very anti-police as well and wants police out of school. So, yes, it, it encompasses all of that. And, and, then, uh, and it goes without saying that they back CRT and, and diversity, equity and inclusion as well. Of course. I mean, going back to their education platform, we're saying that, you know, they don't want any sort of private schools. They want to protect the students' right to self-organize. Um, on their, you know, platform on gender, sexuality, and justice, they want free contraception, free birth control, free abortion provided by the state, comprehensive sex ed in schools, single-payer, single-payer Medicare, and they want to allow minors access sex changes without parental consent. So in short, yes, they are, you know, all in on pushing divisive gender ideology. And I'm talking to Alex Nestor, who's an investigative fellow at the Parents Defending Education. So they've taken every bad idea from the left side of the of the aisle and brought it all together under one umbrella and said, this is what your kids are going to get. And not only that, but they yeah, exactly. They want they want to push this in kids in schools on our kids. And the kids are a captive audience to a large extent because most states have a law that says you have to either 
homeschool, private school, charter school, or attend a public school. So they've got this captive audience of kids to push their political agenda on. Well, right. And in another part, um, something that we point out in this report is not only are they pushing it through being on school boards and influencing the way that teachers might approach a, a topic like like we were saying, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Not only that, but there are also, there's a youth arm, the Young DSA, that has chapters in schools all across the country. So in California, Los Angeles and Riverside have DSA chapters for, for students, um, not just for teachers at schools. There's one in Palm Beach, Florida, in Fayette County, Kentucky. So it's just another way for this, you know, very toxic ideology to be pushed on kids. Alex, real quick before the break, um, where can people find what you've written up for PDE? Uh, you can find all of our stuff at defendinged.org. And if you Google DSA in schools, parents defending education, it'll pop right up. Very good. Alex, it's a pleasure. Merry Christmas in advance. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much take, for having take me. Take care now. We'll be back in a moment. I want to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And check in on our Instagram feed. You'll find that. And tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his head. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. We call this the best conversation in talk journalism. Why? Uh, well, number one, because we basically allow just about anybody who wants to call in, because I don't screen, and neither does Joel, and neither does Donovan or McKenzie. When they screen calls, we don't decide. We just decide, are you capable of making a full sentence? Which might mean that if Joe Biden were to call the show, he might not get on, because Joe has a tough time with entire sentences. But, and Kamala Harris, a little bit the same, although she might just fool some of my producers with all that word salad that she shovels out. And if you're a naysayer, unlike most places, we're glad to put you right to the head of the line. Just arrive with your argument in good shape. That is, be capable of making the point. If you think Donald Trump should be thrown off the ballot in Colorado, if you think Donald Trump is not qualified, that he is guilty of insurrection, if you think that a state Supreme Court can rule somebody guilty before he's had a trial, I'd be glad to hear the naysayer call. At 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll, or X poll, I think we'll permanently change the name of that, since I think Elon Musk is going to stick with X. Should states throw President Trump off the ballot for insurrection, as Colorado has done, as a number of states have lawsuits that are seeking to do it, as California's lieutenant governor announced today, California is going to look for every any excuse it can find to toss Donald Trump off the ballot and, in effect, tell citizens of those states, 
Already it's happened in Colorado. You're not allowed to vote for Donald Trump. I don't think citizens should take that lightly. When a bunch of judges appointed by Democrats, all of them in the state of Colorado, every single one of the seven members of the Colorado Supreme Court was appointed by a Democrat. So do they have a dog in the fight politically? Absolutely they do. Should they tell Republicans in the state of Colorado, you're not allowed to vote for this guy because we don't like him. And we've found him guilty without trial of insurrection. And I'll remind you, when the FBI investigated charges that Donald Trump, by giving that speech out on the Capitol grounds, was guilty of insurrection, the FBI came back and said, no, sorry, we couldn't find the evidence to make that case. When the Biden DOJ was asked, aren't you going to charge Donald Trump with insurrection? They did not. When the special counsel, Jack Smith, considered all the charges he might bring against Donald Trump because they're trying to find an excuse to keep him from becoming president because they know that his reelection to the presidency is virtually guaranteed in November of next year. Even special counsel Jack Smith said, I'm not bringing that insurrection charge. I can't prove it in court. So what do they get instead? A bunch of Democrat Supreme Court judges who say, you want him found guilty? We'll just find him guilty. No trial, no trial needed. Almost like the Queen of Hearts. You know, verdict first, trial later. So should the states throw Donald Trump off the ballot for insurrection? No. But you can vote any way you like. We like naysayers at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to mention something, too, before. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Let's stick with the political question because if you see the Democrats saying we are going to absolutely stop the most popular candidate for president from running, from seeking the nomination, from trying to be elected, and he probably will be because the polls show he is almost guaranteed to get the nomination in the summer of next year from the Republican Party, almost guaranteed to beat Donald uh, to beat uh, Joe Biden. Well, now some Republican officials, and this is from the New York Post, outraged by what Colorado Supreme Court did, want to, uh, they want to do the same. They have said that maybe what we should do is boot Biden off the ballot. Now, I'm not in favor of that, unless and until the U.S. Supreme Court says we're going to uphold the Colorado ruling. I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to overturn it. But if they were to uphold it, then I would be perfectly okay with that. You want to throw Trump off the ballot? We're going to throw Biden off the ballot. So now we got the two likely nominees, both excluded from the primary ballot and the voters. Doesn't make any sense. Let's go to Jason in Nevada. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, I just had a quick question for you, buddy. Sure, I'll try. So if, if Donald is not on the ballot in Colorado, can't they just handwrite him in? They can, but here's the caveat. And Jason, I, I, I'm happy to admit when I don't have the answer and I'd like to get the answer. If, if you're the, say you are the elections, instead of living in Nevada, you're the elections director in Colorado and your state Supreme Court has said Donald Trump is, is disqualified to be president because he's guilty of insurrection. That's the finding of, of the state Supreme Court in Colorado. Can you, as an elections official, count votes, you know, written-in votes, write-in votes, that are cast by people for a candidate that your state Supreme Court has said is disqualified from being a candidate? Wow. 
See, I Crazy and, and stuff, buddy. see, I can see it go either way. I can see an elections official saying we and I've talked to I mean, over the years, I've covered lots and lots of elections. I remember one time I said, what are the craziest names you see written in? People write in Mickey Mouse. They write in all kinds of crazy things. And I said, does anybody keep account of it? And they said, well, if a candidate gets more than a certain number of votes, it depends. In some states, they count all the write ins and they're funny lists to look at because some people apparently don't take voting seriously. And so they're right in, they're probably right in Jeffrey Epstein or right in, uh, you know, Santa Claus or whatever. And, and, and that's showing disrespect. I mean, you can do it. I mean, you're certainly able to do that if you don't respect the election system. But Jason, I could equally see, and, and since most of the people who work in government, in the bureaucracy, which is where most of the elections workers are, is in the bureaucracy, since most of them hew to the left, there are a few conservatives, but most of them are lefties. So if I imagine that the left-wingers in the Colorado Elections Department say, well, the Supreme Court says this guy isn't qualified, they might literally say, we won't even count the write-in votes. So what the GOP in Colorado already announced as of, I think it was 10 or 12 hours ago, they said, if they keep him off the ballot in the primary, we won't go by the primary. We will we'll we'll have caucuses, which some states have like the Iowa caucuses or why, you know, there are different states that have caucuses. In that case, they simply end do an end around on the primary and the primary becomes almost meaningless at that point, at least for Republicans. And I I don't like that either, because I, I think that, you know, the, the the whole point of primary elections, Jason, is kind of odd because. Political parties are private organizations. They're not a function of the state. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So the elections officials in Nevada are state or county um, employees, but the party is not. And what the parties have done over the years, the two major parties, have said, we want to have an election and decide our nominee based on the election. And, uh, and in that case, the state is holding an election that is for a private organization called a political party. And some people get that mixed up. They say, well, doesn't the party work for the state? No. The, the Republican Party is a private political organization. The Democrat Party is a private political organization. So they use the primary to decide their nominee. And yet here's the state of Colorado saying, we're going to decide, uh, we're going to make a major decision that affects your choice as a private political party in who you're allowed to consider and so the GOP, I think, smartly has said, well, we just won't take part in your primary then. We'll do it another way. And crazy stuff, my friend. It is very crazy. And, Jason, it's a very good question and one I don't have the answer to yet. But I'd like to know if the elections officials say Donald John Trump written in on a million ballots in Colorado, are they going to say, well, we're just not going to count those votes because he's not qualified to be president? That's really crazy. Coming up, is there any end in sight to the Israeli-Hamas war? We'll talk about that in a moment. The 
the 40th president of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you blamed the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, we've been talking about Hamas and Israel, the terrorist attack on Israel, the pleas by America's left wing to say, don't hit back Israel, which I think is absolutely outrageous, but Israel is standing strong at this point. But is there any end in sight to this conflict? Um, I do want to play one soundbite before I talk to Ken Weinstein. Uh, Joel, I kind of jumped ahead of the game there, but would you play that soundbite from our great, courageous commander-in-chief, Joe Biden? Are we expecting a hostage deal anytime soon? Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Well, well, well. Where? Oh, no, I was, I was talking about it. You're talking about the, we're pushing it. We, I, I don't, there's no expectation at this point. Now, but Ken, I, know, uh, uh, I want to talk to Ken Weinstein about this. He's the Japan chair at the Hudson Institute. Ken, welcome to the program, by the way. Thank you, Lars. Glad to and, be with you. And, and i got to tell you, this is the commander-in-chief of the United States of America asked, is there a hostage deal? And he says definitively, yes. And then he looks at the reporter and he says, wait, where? <laughs> and, well, I don't know. How many other hostage negotiations are we in at this point? And, uh, and, and the reporter clarifies and says, Israel, Hamas. And the president says, oh, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're working on it real hard. Doesn't seem like Joe Biden has a really firm grasp of what's going on, does he? Yeah, look, I'd say this. I think that it's, 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 there are definitely negotiations going on between Israel, the United States, uh, and Qatar and Hamas, a, a sort of a, as, as I understand it, there's talk about kind of a big release of all the hostages in exchange for a longer-term ceasefire, uh, as I understand it. And I think the president has some sense of what's going on, doesn't kind of want to tip his hat, but he's also been... He's been strong, very strong verbally in defense of Israel, but he's also not taken all the steps that his administration could do to really aid Israel. You know, they've, they've done a great job in terms of sending aircraft carriers to the region, but they've done absolutely nothing to go after the real patrons of Hamas, which is Iran. They've done nothing to enforce the already existing international oil sanctions on Iran. Uh, they've done nothing to further sanction Iran, and I think there's some sense within the administration they're trying to get Iran back into some sort of a nuclear deal, which we all know is completely ludicrous. Uh, and so there is some confusion and some contradiction internally in terms of what the administration's policy is, and the president is uh, definitely emblematic of that. So, Ken, and, and I don't know how much you can get into politics, but does this make sense? I'm I'm old enough that I can remember when both the United States and Israel said we don't negotiate with terrorists. And because the first time you pay off hostage takers will not be the last one. And the and as soon as you do it, you're opening the door to say, oh, we want something from you. We'll just grab some of your people and hold them till you give us what they want. That's what extortionists do. And Hamas is able to do that, and the United States says, oh, well, maybe we'll make a deal. You won't be attacked uh, because you're going to release hostages. That sounds like an open invitation for every time you, whether it's Iran or Hamas or whatever party, want something, just grab some of our people, and, and we'll be forced to give it to you. No, absolutely. And I think Israel learned the lesson behind the release of uh, Gilad Shalit, who was the uh, Israeli who was held for a number of years in Gaza, in which they released over a thousand prisoners, including uh, Sinwar, the leader of uh, 
the military wing of Hamas, who was the, the master behind, behind the plot, who, as we all know, was in an Israeli prison, was crying uh, uh, one day when he had a massive headache and was uh, then diagnosed with, with brain cancer and was then actually treated by the Israelis and given chemotherapy, given the latest surgical techniques to save his life, something Israel regrets. And I think the Israelis have a different take on it than the United States does. They're going to eliminate everybody involved in this uh, in the actions of uh, October 7th. That is, if you were involved, you're a dead man, you're a dead woman. They have got facial recognition software going. They know who the attackers are. They will eliminate everyone. And so uh, it's a slightly different deal than the last time around when they, they release people. They're, they're going to do all they can to hunt people around the world. No, I mean, does does this remind you at all, Ken, of what what happened after World War II, where there was for a long time a hunt for the bad guys, and they and and Mossad and others successfully hunted them down, and in most cases eliminated them? Did they not? Yeah, well, it's really more uh, it's more reminiscent of after the Munich uh, terror oh. attack when uh, the Israeli Olympic team was uh, was it uh, thirteen members of the Israeli Olympic team were killed, and, and and the Israelis went around the world and eliminated every one of the Black September terrorists. Uh, they, the Israelis did not have they had significant success after World War II, but they didn't have total success. Uh, let, let's face it, a lot of the Nazis were able to escape into into Brazil, Argentina. Some were caught there. Others got went on to serve in positions of distinction in the German government. Some of the collaborators served in positions in the French government, other governments. And so, but this is a very different story here, where there's clear video. And uh, the Israelis are not messing around. They're not taking any chances. So that's what the Israelis are betting on. It's definitely a risk, but they absolutely want the rest of these hostages uh, home. And the public opinion outcry has been significant for the 130 who are still remaining in captivity. I'm talking to Ken Weinstein, who's the Japan chair at the Hudson Institute. So is this including the flooding of all these tunnels, these 300 miles of tunnels that have been used to shelter the Hamas terrorists, which, by the way, they haven't used to help uh, shelter any innocent civilians in Gaza, if there is such a thing. Um, is this going to somewhat permanently put Hamas out of business, or does their uh, <laughs> the, their location of a somewhat American-paid-for headquarters down in Qatar mean that, that all you're going to do is kill a bunch of the foot soldiers but not get at the real heart of the organization? But I think there are something like 30,000 Hamas soldiers, about half have either been captured, have surrendered, or have been killed so far, as I understand it. And there's still about half to go, including a significant portion of the leadership. A lot of the leadership is uh, clearly on the lam. Some have undoubtedly left uh, Gaza already. Those who are in Qatar have supposedly uh, left Qatar, and they have shut their cell phones off because they know the Israelis were tracking them. Uh, through their IP addresses, uh, but I'm sure the Israelis have other means of uh, tracking these individuals, uh, including human intelligence, and they will come to uh, pay the price. But it's it's a long journey to eliminate uh, uh, these uh, terrorists. It's it's it you know it's been very costly in terms of uh, blood for uh, the Israelis so far, and it's also been costly in terms of blood of the uh, Palestinians, among whom uh, Hamas uh, shelters itself and of whom Hamas takes advantage. You know, while these guys sit in there with their billions of dollars in Qatar, uh, average Palestinians who believe the horrific rhetoric uh, that uh, Hamas tells them about Israel, about Jews, about Americans, about Christians, about the West, 
Uh, they're the ones who are dying while the Hamas leadership uh, oftentimes is leading a life of luxury, uh, as you mentioned, in the Persian Gulf. Ken, thank you very much. That's Ken Weinstein, who's the Japan chair at the Hudson Institute. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and be sure to tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Thomas lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. But let me remind you, please, take the opportunity to remind you, we didn't just leave a bunch of weapons in Afghanistan. This is a fallacy. This is a farce. This is a farce? That's John Kirby. John Kirby speaks for the U.S. State Department. John Kirby is out there gaslighting America to a fare thee well. Uh, I want to tell you what I mean by that. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I mean, it's almost unbelievable that somebody like John Kirby would actually stand there and say, we just didn't leave a bunch of weapons in Afghanistan. Hold on a second. Every single American who's been paying attention, especially in that hot summer of 2021, the first year of the Biden administration, knows that Joe Biden abandoned tens of billions of dollars of weapons. Some of the most sophisticated weapons in the world were left in Afghanistan. That included helicopters. It included Humvees. It included armored personnel carriers. It also included tens or hundreds of thousands of rifles and pistols. And now, not quite three years later, just over two years later, you've got John Kirby standing there saying, oh, this is a farce. We didn't leave a bunch of weapons in Afghanistan. That is classic gaslighting. You know where gaslighting comes from. It's a play in which the husband is trying to drive the wife crazy so she can go to a loony bin. And uh, and he keeps turning the gas lights down, but telling her, no, the lights are full up. Don't don't be fooled by your own eyes. That is classic gaslighting. So in this case, you got John Kirby saying, no, oh, we didn't leave a bunch of weapons in Afghanistan. Where'd you hear that? That's a fallacy. It's a farce. Tens of billions of dollars left in the hands of the Taliban. But the amount of gaslighting that's going on in America is absolutely stunning. And let me give you a great example. The New York Times is out there and the spin they're running is this. They say, well, you know, it must be that Joe Biden's approval ratings, which have now hit record lows for Joe Biden, 34% of Americans approve of the job he's doing. That is down 10% from just July of this year. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I could give you a short list. How about massive increases in crime, massive increases in prices, American families going broke, and the government spending at a record level a $2 trillion deficit. Is that the reason? No, the New York Times has a whole different spin to it. They say, you know what? Uh, people are just believing that crime is up. It's really not up. It's actually down. No, it's not. 
In fact, take a look at the data. We talk about it all the time. Murder is up. Is it down from last year, one of the Biden years? Yeah, it's down from last year. Joe Biden and his friends and the mobs out in the streets shouting, uh, you know, defund the police and prosecutors elected by George Soros that refuse to actually prosecute people, even though that's the job of a prosecutor. If you look at the new Gallup poll, 92% of America, of Republicans, 78% of independents, and 58%, a solid majority of Democrats say crime is on the rise. But the New York Times and others are simply saying, no, no, that's just a lot of Americans who've been brainwashed by conservative talk radio and, and conservative Fox News. Well, they're not so conservative anymore, but that's a subject for another day. Can you imagine that they're running this theory? When you have 92% of Republicans, 78% of those in the middle, independents, and 58% of Democrats who think crime is rising, how many Democrats do they think are listening to talk radio or watching conservative news on television or on a stream? No, but they've got to carry water for Joe, so they've got to find some other reason to say, no, it must be something else, because actually things are going very, very well, and Joe's doing a great job. Anyway, glad to be with you. 866-HEY-LARS, 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Daniel. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? You know, I have a question, and it's just that everybody's claiming to, you know, that we're a democracy when we are not. We are a republic. We're a federal, re- federal republic, and there's a difference there as well. There is. Well, what, what are they claiming we're trying to defend our... I, uh, I think I think the, the, I can tell you why I think people say it that way, Daniel, and it's understandable. We are a, a republic, meaning a representative form of government. The people elect representatives both in their states and to the Congress, and then those representatives allegedly carry out the will of the people. So that's a, a republic in simple terms. But we have elements of democracy because we vote for those representatives. We don't just have the government choose a bunch of people and say, you're representing this state or you're representing that state. So we are a federal republic with elements of democracy included in it. Does that make sense? Uh, kind of, no, not really. <laughs> so I, remember, I remember in school, uh, I, I used to have to stand every morning, put my hand on my heart, and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America to the republic for which it stands. Yeah. You know, I didn't say to the democracy for which it stands, it's to the republic. And so um, everything about that flag is, that, is our country, is our, you know, solitude. You know, that's what well, I've always except, been Except that, it, it, for one thing, the Pledge of Allegiance uh, is, I think the pledge should be said in every public school in America every single day. But having said that, the pledge is not the law, or and it doesn't define us. So... If you say we're defining it only as a republic, well, how are those representatives chosen to represent you in this republic? And you say, by a vote. So you have you have right. a big exactly. chunk of democracy in there. And then if somebody says to you, well, do you have direct democracy? And you say, well, direct democracy, as in the town gets together and citizens vote on virtually everything, uh, might work in a very small town in Maine or Vermont, but it doesn't work for a country as big and as populated as we are. Because you, you couldn't begin to have a public vote on everything. So we're definitely not a full democracy, but we may not be a full republic as well because people are allowed to choose their representatives and unchoose them as well. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. But shouldn't, shouldn't people realize, be, be, be realized that 
we are a republic you know, as well. Yeah, but then what it, happens, it, it, so, Daniel, Daniel, when, when yeah. we have a situation like this, where, for example, Colorado Supreme Court says, you can't have this candidate on the ballot. We're not going to we let you vote. We're, we're not going yeah. to let you vote for him. Well, in that case, is is the representative part of our government threatened or is the democracy part of our government threatened? Didn't threaten. That could be the democracy part. Right. Except, and that's why we're, we're an animal. We're kind of an interesting animal. The longest lasting republic, I think there may be one longer but America's Republic, uh, for any country of size, I think there's some small ones that have been around a bit longer, but for any country of any size, we're the longest lasting republic in world history. And it's, uh, it's, and if I'm wrong about that, I'm happy to be corrected, but, but I believe we're one of the longest lasting, you know, decent sized countries that is a republic. Direct democracy, I think, could never function on the kind of scale that the United States would require. Glad for your call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. On social media, you can check me out on Twitter. We are, of course, on Getter as well. We're on Truth as well. And you can find my Instagram feed. And you can always tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. As the cost of Christmas has climbed so high, even the head of the Biden crime family finds it expensive. Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. Merry Christmas from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you. And I'm always glad to have my friend Hans von Spakowski. I'm going to talk twice as fast as normal because Hans, I want to get a lot of questions in. Hans is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He specializes in elections. So the first question, Hans, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, Section 3, is Donald Trump, is the President of the United States an officer of the United States? No, and that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the United States Supreme Court, which in multiple um, decisions has said that term, an officer of the United States, only refers to people who have been appointed to office in the federal government, not individuals who have been elected. And that's why they made the distinction of adding in senators by name, House members by name, but did not. Uh, and so if you were appointed to the House, you would be you would not be an, or you would be an officer if you're elected. But they said under the if you were part of the uh, insurrection against the United States, especially in the Civil War, you would be forbidden to run for, for federal office. Right. That, that's right. But but that provision, Section 3, does not apply to a president or a vice president. So it, does, it doesn't even apply to Donald Trump. There's no reason to even get into, well, did he or didn't he commit insurrection, which all these liberal courts just love 
doing, like the Colorado court. But the point is, Section 3 doesn't apply to him. And, and I'm sure you know, you know, you've now got a case uh, going on in Oregon, too. Yep. And then there's an attempt to remove him from the ballot, which means the U.S. Supreme Court is going to, we hope, take this up quickly and slap it down fast. Can we hope for that? Yes. Yeah, the, the only the Colorado Supreme Court's decision was yesterday. The only appeal um, from a state Supreme Court is to the U.S. Supreme Court. So uh, given the importance of this issue and the fact that there are multiple cases like this going on, I would hope that the Supreme Court will jump on this immediately. Well, and Hans, let me ask you this procedural question. Ordinarily, the court takes up a question, decides that question. Uh, but in this case... Would they take up Colorado, uh, for for example, and say, okay, you're wrong, this doesn't apply to him, and by the way, to the rest of you states that are trying to do this, it doesn't apply there either? Or or can they go that broadly with a, 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 a decision they make? Oh, they can go that broadly, because look, if they overrule the Supreme Court and say, well, we, you and I have just talked about, a president is not an officer of the United States, therefore... Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to Donald Trump. That wipes out every other case around the country, including um, the case in Oregon. And does it also have an impact on the case that was brought by the special counsel against Trump? Does that apply? No, because uh, no, because in fact, that's one of the issues in this case. Um, Look, the, the, the indictment that the special counsel brought against Trump, there's no charge of insurrection or rebellion. Right. I was going to get <laughs> so, to that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's not even in there. So, so, you know, here you have the Colorado State Supreme Court saying, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump was guilty of insurrection when he's never been convicted. He's never been charged. And in fact, the U.S. Senate acquitted him of that charge uh, 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 in the in the second uh, impeachment trial. I was going to ask you because Hans, can I generically describe an impeachment as a kind of of uh, indictment? I mean, the House effectively yeah. indicted Trump, and they did indict him for the specifics of uh, specific crime, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors of insurrection, and the Senate acquitted him. Right? Yes. Yeah, and that's why it's so um, frankly uh, wrong for a, a basically a local court, a state court, four judges to claim that um, they can override and substitute their judgment for that of the United States Senate when they're judges from one state. The U.S. Senate represents all 50 states, the voters of all 50 states, and the U.S. Senate said uh, the president was acquitted from any charge of engaging in an insurrection. And by the way, Hans, if if the Biden DOJ had believed that it could successfully bring a or even likely successfully bring a charge of insurrection against Donald Trump, they would have, wouldn't they? Yes, of course. Of course they would. And, and they, they didn't. They don't seem to, No, and they and they didn't. And that's why uh this this decision by the Colorado court. I mean, look, that's just that's just two of the things wrong with it. There are many other errors and, and mistakes in it. Well, let's talk about them. Where are the other major errors for people who are right now picking up their phones or turning on their computers and looking up the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Uh, there's two other things. One, um, 
There is an old court decision uh, uh, in which Samuel P. Chase, he was then the chief justice of the Supreme Court, said Section 3 is not self-executing. In other words, it can only be enforced if Congress passes a law providing for enforcement. Congress has never done that. That means that no court has the authority to try to um, enforce Section 3. The Colorado court just overlooked that and said, well, we can enforce it if we, if we want to, okay? And then the fourth item, which in their long decision, they didn't even mention it. <laughs> um, if you look carefully at that, that Section 3, you'll see at the end a very unique sentence. It says, Congress can, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, basically get rid of and void Section 3. Cure the disability is the way they say it, right? Yes, that's right. And in 1872, Congress passed an Amnesty Act that got rid of it, except for a couple of exceptions. And in 1898, they passed a second Amnesty Act that got rid of it entirely. So there's there's doubt that that section even exists today from a legal standpoint. Let me ask you something. When they framed the 14th Amendment and wrote all the sections, they had endless debates. I've read some of them recently because I want to refresh my memory of those things. Why didn't they why did they specifically exclude the president from that list that appears to include state legislators, uh, U.S. senators, House members, other federal officials? Why didn't they? Was there a specific reason they didn't say, yeah, you shouldn't be able to run for president either if you're from uh, if you if you sided with the Confederacy? Uh, I think that was I think they believed that they would be invading um, the separation of powers and putting in requirements uh, on the executive branch that they really uh, shouldn't be doing, that it was up to the American people to make that decision uh, not them. Do you think that Colorado Supreme Court members know this is going to get shot down immediately by the Supreme Court? Well, we can't guarantee that. I hope that's what happened. But look, these judges are clearly um, ideological partisans masquerading as, as judges, because otherwise, how could they ignore the prior cases, for example, I, I, I've just talked about, like the U.S. Supreme Court? saying an office of the U.S. doesn't include the president, and yet that's a requirement for Section 3 to apply. They, they just ignored that. Do, do they have bad clerks at the Colorado Supreme Court? Clerks no, that I didn't, think they, didn't get good grades in law school or something? No, I think they just don't care. Because, look, the bottom line here is that can you think of a more undemocratic decision? Because no. these four judges... <laughs> took away the ability of the more than four and a half million voters of Colorado to make their own decision on this. Absolutely right. Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Hans, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you're a naysayer, oh, this subject just deserves a good naysayer. Just call in at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. And check me out on Instagram. The Lars Larson Show.
men and the people who love Gun Control Explained. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll do that in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. But first, I want to welcome back to the program Dr. Curry Myers, who is a criminologist and a former sheriff and state trooper. Dr. Myers, Merry Christmas in advance. Oh, Merry Christmas to you, too. Appreciate Uh, you having me on. I'm glad to do it. Uh, When I saw what happened, the Texas state legislature said, look, Joe Biden is not going to enforce immigration law. We have an invasion. It's damaging our state. And they passed three laws. And Governor Abbott signed the laws earlier this week and made them or signed the bills and made them into law. And uh, and I had a lot of people just outraged. How dare a state try to do what the federal government refuses to do? Is that a bad idea to have the state take on a, a responsibility and something that's demonstrably damaging a state uh, if the federal government won't do it? No, in fact, uh, there's many instances where state um, law enforcement authorities help and take on federal crimes and statutes. Uh, look to the to the problems with drugs and drug enforcement. Uh, there are many. M- most of that is governed under federal law, and law enforcement certainly um, arrests under under those circumstances. Now they usually get adopted by a federal agency such as the DEA or FBI. But it hasn't been unusual. But this is what's unique about this particular situation is the federal government, who usually has responsibility for immigration in the country, is actually violating its own law. So they are the ones that are in violation of the law. And as a result, we're having people who are coming into this country illegally and they're committing criminal acts. It's not just the fact that they are coming into the country illegally, which is a crime, but these Texas authorities are also dealing with numerous issues associated with weapons violations, state weapons violations, sexual offenses, sexual assaults, robbery, theft, kidnapping, the furtherance of drugs, fentanyl, uh, burglary, assault, and even homicides are associated with it. So. Uh, I'm not an attorney, but it's my understanding that nowhere in the Constitution or any congressional statute is immigration enforcement granted solely to the federal government. In fact, um, Supreme Court Justice Scalia said when he was alive, it seems to me entirely appropriate when the state uses the federal law as a criterion for the exercise of its own power and the implementation of its own policies of excluding those who do not belong here. And so there's there's an example. And we have to understand that Texas is a little different. It actually came into the United States as a sovereign nation on its own, it, unlike any of uh, our other states. Uh, and there are some powers with sovereignty associated with Texas uh, that are longstanding that um, Texas hasn't um, really needed to, to wiggle that, that side of the, of the law. But there's probably not a better time to show the federal government that if you're not going to do uh, and enforce the law, then we as Texas have a responsibility to enforce the law. 
Yeah, Dr. And Myers, I, 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 like you, I'm not an attorney, but I'm curious. Immediately after Texas passed these laws, the governor signed them. Uh, the ACLU, the American Crooks and Lawyers Union, immediately went to court and said, we're going to contest this. And I kind of wonder how they're going to do in court. As I said, neither one of us is an attorney. But to, to go to court and say, you, Texas, can't pass a law saying that it's illegal to enter Texas from a foreign country. If you're not doing it legally, you're committing a crime and our police are going to enforce that. I don't even know. I, I know when they went against Arizona years ago under Obama because Arizona said we're going to enforce federal law. And the federal government said, no, you're not because you don't have the authority to enforce federal law on your own. I mean, when you were a, a sheriff and a state trooper, I'm sure that there were federal laws that you were aware of. But you'd say, well, if I want to charge this guy federally, I'll hand him off to the U.S. Marshals or the FBI or, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they would take care of it yeah. or they wouldn't. But but that you weren't crossing that line. Arizona tried to cross the line. They got slapped down. But can they slap down a, co a, a state for saying you're not going to do this? So we're going to write our own laws that we're allowed to do and then we're going to enforce them. I don't know how they go after them on that. Yeah. And as to your point, it's Texas law. They're not they're not trying to do federal immigration enforcement. They're following their own statutes. And I, it probably would be more difficult if they made it more onerous than what the federal law is, but they haven't. They're, they're, they're mirroring the federal law, basically. So they're not making it tougher to come. I could understand if they made it tougher to come into this country. That would be, you know, every state would then be able to do that, and there could be some sort of legal chaos as a result. Uh, but they're certainly not making it tougher. They're just going to enforce the existing, uh, they're going to, they're mirroring the federal statute and saying it's going to be a state law and we're going to use uh, law enforcement to do it. And and there are some things that they're, they are prohibiting there. There are certain areas where they're not going to go. They're not going to go into hospitals. They're not going to go into um, religious institutions. They're not going to go into schools. Uh, and the, and the other issue is you, they have to have, they have to have probable cause to make the arrest. Well, probable cause means you have to either see or have evidence to support the person came into the country Ill illegally. Yep. Um, so a, a lot of these folks are making they're 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 saying it's a racial issue, which has nothing to do with it. Um, the law enforcement has to has have to have probable cause specifically in the statute to be able to arrest somebody and probable cause in this case would be the law enforcement officer has witnessed them coming coming into the state illegally and the, in the United States illegally as a result, or they have some documentation, photographic or some other evidence to support the fact that they've been in the country illegally. Well, uh, so uh, to me, it oh, makes, sorry, to ahead. me, it makes sense. No, I mean, to me, from a law enforcement point of view, it, it makes sense to have that kind of extra effort. When I was a state trooper, I, I stopped people that were in the country illegally. They didn't have any driver's license. They didn't have any information. That, um, uh, and I actually took them into custody, but they were kept at the jail under a federal watch list until the U.S. Border Patrol or Customs could then come and investigate it further. Um, so, you know, law enforcement already does have some of those, but just in the recent years, federal law enforcement basically has said we're not coming so that's kind of thrown that ability for law enforcement local and state law enforcement officers to be able to help out the federal government because basically they're saying well if you have not in custody we're not going to come do anything about it anyway well and and, and dr in, Myers, in the meantime, we got, yeah yeah 
No, I just in the meantime, we got you know, uh, 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 the watch list for terrorism is, is at 2 million now coming into this country. 2 million out of the nine. Yeah. It's an un- unbelievable two million, number. 2 million people are on the watch list, the, uh, the terrorism watch list as of today, according to federal uh, authorities. And, and, you know, we have, we have at least more, almost 70,000 that are on the spe- special interest category that we know have come into this country. And that means they have been seen coming into this country. And that's, and so wouldn't the, the, it be enough, Dr. Myers, if, if you're down at the Rio Grande and you see somebody swimming across or walk, wading across, and then they're greeted by Border Patrol and written a little citation saying show up in court, wouldn't that be enough to say that's probable cause to believe this person is entered illegally? In fact, Joe Biden's Border Patrol has just written you a citation. So I know you're coming into the country. It's at least probable cause. Would that be enough? Absolutely. That and we, they have drones. They have electronic capabilities to prove if someone has crossed into the border illegally. Um, so it, it's to me, it's the, the the problem goes back to the federal government has abdicated their responsibility. You're absolutely right. Dr. Myers, thanks very much. That's Dr. Curry Myers, criminologist, former sheriff and state trooper. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls. I got to tell you about this. There's been a new development involving Wuhan, the virus, China, and some really dirty dogs in America, including Anthony Fauci, including people at the CDC, at the FDA, and at major American universities. And what they did, we now know because of the right to know foundation it's a it's an organization i don't have any direct contact or a direct connection with them i don't take any money from them let's put it that way i really wanted the author of this piece on but i wasn't able to get her on on short notice but this just popped up last night american scientists lied to the pentagon about research that was being done in communist china and when did they do this lying? Well, you might remember, we're coming up on the anniversary of the beginning of the pandemic three years ago in the early part of 2020. So when were these lies being told? Well, they were being told two years earlier. And we now know, you know, parenthetically, that uh, com- communist China knew they had a virus and an epidemic on their hands, not in early 2020. They were still lying about it in early 2020, and so was the World Health Organization, and so was Anthony Fauci, and so was the FDA. But the Chinese knew they had a virus and a pandemic on their hands in the fall of 2019. And why is that important? Because if communist China had done the right thing and said to America, hey, we got a pandemic possibility, it's an epidemic now, or it's likely to become an epidemic, uh, but we want to give you a fair warning a lot of things would have happened differently. And allowing that to go on for more weeks and months 
made the situation even more difficult to handle in the United States. So that's the history. What do we know today that's brand new? And I'll give full credit to the Right to Know Foundation. They go out and dig out public documents and they make them public, like a lot of good organizations like Judicial Watch do. And here's what they've concluded. Uh, Emily Kopp is the art, is the author's article. So I've got to give full credit to her and, and I hope to talk to her at some point in the next few weeks. American researchers concealed their intention to do high risk coronavirus research in Wuhan under lax safety standards from the Pentagon the year before the COVID pandemic. U.S. Right to Know got the documents. I can cite chapter and verse on this. And, you know, I know that a lot of you will go to websites and there are all kinds of crazy things on the Internet. I'm always impressed when somebody says, here are the documents, here are the links, you can read the documents yourself, you can see where they came from. So take yourself back about five years to 2018, and there was a grant proposal. This is where you go to the federal government and you say, we'd like to get some money. And what do you want to do? It's called Project Defuse. And it was co-authored by who? The Wuhan Institute of Virology and a group of American scientists. They had an idea to do some research. The problem was that in the United States, gain-of-function research, where they take viruses that don't infect human beings and make them infectious to human beings. And if you're asking, well, why in the world would anybody want to make a disease that doesn't infect humans start infecting humans? I've been asking that question for the last three years, and I still haven't got a satisfactory answer to it. But here's what they were proposing. They wanted to take, and this will sound familiar, high-risk coronaviruses of the same species as SARS and SARS-CoV-2. And what they wanted to do, and this will also ring some bells if you paid attention during the pandemic, They wanted to synthesize spike proteins with what are called furin cleavage sites, the same kind of thing in SARS-CoV-2 that supercharged CoV-2 into the most infectious pandemic pathogen in 100 years. In fact, some of the scientists have said that Diffuse was a blueprint for generating SARS-CoV-2 in the lab. So what did U.S. Right to Know, this organization, do? They found out that the experiments were proposed to happen in Wuhan. And why would they want to move all that research to the other side of the planet, to a communist country run by an evil government that does not have America's best interests at heart? And the answer is really simple. The rules are different there. They wanted to save money. And this is the U.S. scientists and their friends in communist China. They said, well, you know, if we do it in America, we got all these rules and regulations. In fact, to his credit, Barack Hussein Obama actually said, we're not going to fund any gain-of-function research in the United States. Now, this put a real crimp, you know, put a hitch in the get-along for some of these scientists to say, hey, it's really fun to take viruses and see if we can make them infect humans, even though they don't infect humans right now. Again, it sounds crazy and mad scientists to most of us, because what could the possible benefit be? We're going to take diseases that don't make humans sick, and we're going to turn them into diseases that make humans sick? Now, who were they applying for money from? The Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, known as DARPA, all right? DARPA involved in the Internet way back when and everything else. Uh, They're supposed to be an agency of the federal government that goes out and funds research that will give us, you know, new and clever stuff to do in the defense of the United States. In this case, it ended up being incredibly bad for the United States. And a couple of other names that will seem familiar. 
Ralph Barrick. Now, Ralph Barrick is a scientist. He's at the University of North Carolina. And then there's Peter Daszak. Daszak is the head of the EcoHealth Alliance. And I've been running into both of these names in all of the stuff I've read over the last four years. So Barrick is in charge of a lab at the University of North Carolina that focuses on coronaviruses. And Daszak with EcoHealth Alliance, they both worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on gain of function to make coronaviruses more deadly. But what did they do when they went to the Pentagon? Said, hey, we'd like to get a DARPA grant to do this research. They deliberately, according to the emails obtained by Right to Know, this private organization, they went to the Pentagon and said, uh, in fact, in one of the emails, let me read part of one. If we win this contract, I do not propose that all of this work will be done by Ralph, meaning Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina. But I want to stress the U.S. side of this proposal. In other words, say, yeah, we're going to do all this stuff at UNC. And don't mention Wuhan a lot because, quote, DARPA needs to be comfortable with our team. Once we get the money, we can then allocate who does what work. And I believe a lot of this work will be done in Wuhan. In other words, they wanted to work under the rules of Wuhan. They wanted money from the United States. Did they get the money? Yep. And one of the important things to note, uh, and I can't cover everything that Right to Know got a hold of, but they said most of the people who do work with these uh, coronaviruses say you don't do that in a biosafety level two lab. That's where you wear a face mask and, you know, not a, not a, uh, not a hood, not a suit, not a space suit, but you do it under a hood and you make sure that, you know, that you're reasonably well protected, but certainly not like biosafety level three or four. Well, in Wuhan, they were doing it under biosafety level two instead of number three. And the rest, as they say, is history. Glad to be with you, and it's a fascinating piece to read. Uh, we'll put the links up at my website at LarsLarson.com. 866-439-5277. you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by...